The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Reading today from the Gospel of John as we depart from our study in Acts for two weeks. We'll come back. After Easter, we'll come back to Acts. I'm looking at a a really large passage today, and I'm not going to read the entire passage, but really John 11, 1 through 53 is my text. And that's a broad story, but you need to kind of see it as a whole, and that's what I'm hoping to do today without concentrating on every detail. I'm going to, even though I'll mention some things from the first 16 verses, and you can scan those as we go along, I'm going to pick up at verse 17 and read through 53. This is the incident when Jesus was some distance away from the little town of Bethany near Jerusalem. Word came that his friend Lazarus was very ill, if not dying. Jesus, in his knowledge, knew that he was dying and, in fact, possibly had died by the time the message arrived. And uh, he tells his disciples that this that death won't be the end of this. And then we find in the middle, after he has gone to arrive at Bethany, we pick up with this in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went out and called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? 
And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he, could not he who opened eyes of a blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. A stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? They took away the stone, and Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, and his hands and feet were bound with linen strips, and his face was wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. One of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the nation, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This is God's own holy word. Very frequently, we find our God specializing in surprising men and women with the things that he does. We could cite countless examples in the Bible of God doing that which human beings first hear about, and they say, why, that's amazing. Why, I never expected that. Think of Moses, a man ejected from Egypt, running from a crime he committed at the age of about 40, educated to be a prince in a privileged land. He became a shepherd at the backside of nowhere and spent 40 years doing that until he was 80. Every expectation of anything unusual Moses ever had was gone by the time he was 80. And yet God appeared to him and told him that marvels would be done through him as God led his people out of that land of slavery. Think of the Virgin Mary. How did that young teenage girl ever, ever begin to imagine what God would do through her and through her body? Did she ever recover from thinking any day of her remaining life What an astounding wonder that God used me 
for the son of the highest to come to earth. And I could go on and on. Habakkuk, the prophet, here was a man who would have said, oh yes, I know God works among nations. God even uses evil nations to judge nations that need judgment. But if you had asked Habakkuk, he never would have said, I expect God will use an evil, wicked, cruel nation to judge my nation. That was a great surprise Habakkuk had to adjust to. I heard last week of someone among us given a surprise party for a landmark birthday. Since it was a lady and the birthday ended with a zero, I'm not going to be explicit who it was, but uh, I heard it was a great success. The lady was surprised. I asked my wife, why do people like to do that to other people? I don't like to be surprised. I want my life to be predictable. That's just a warning. If you ever want to surprise me, (laughs) you won't make me happy. But we human beings seem to enjoy springing these things on people, and we, we rejoice. Oh, we got him. He didn't know it was coming. Well, can you think of God delighting as he surprises people with the marvels of his grace and the wonders that he does that we never expect? The infinite personal God works surprises in the lives of his people of faith all the time. We like to think we've got him figured out. We've got him down to the, you know, the airplane uh, schedule of when the flight leaves. And so we pray according to some imagined schedule. Lord, I need this. You know I need it. You know I need it today. So I expect you to respond. And then we get vexed because God isn't responding on our prayer schedule. Well, the Gospel of John shows us a God who will not be put in a box of any kind of human predictability. Our expectations do not hem Jesus Christ in. Yes, his character and his love and his mercy are are very predictable things. But his actions and how he will work things out for us are often what we would call serendipitous, total surprises. Surprises we can delight in when we discover what he is doing. Today I give you a, a big swath of John chapter 11 presenting in it the pinnacle miracle done by Jesus in his ministry. If you had to somehow rank the miracles, I know that's a bit of an artificial exercise, but you would surely want to put the raising of Lazarus, a man dead several days. Now, Jesus raised others from the dead. One was a a child who had just apparently expired. Another was a young man being carried out of the house. And, and they buried people the same day in that hot climate. So, so he wasn't dead very long. He was raised. But here's Lazarus, four days dead and in the tomb. Jesus raises this man back into bodily life. Not a glorified spiritual body, a human body restored to live in this world. You know, Lazarus, I always say, was kind of unfortunate. He had to die twice. But he was given life back to live an unknown time further in this world. This certainly was one of the capstone miracles of Christ as a proof of God's power over death. And of course, it comes at a time, if you look in your Bible, you'd see that the triumphal entry in John is at 12.12, coming up in the next chapter. So this is indeed one of the last things that happened. And in fact, we read in verse 53 that it was an event that more or less nailed the decision shut that the Sanhedrin would do away with Jesus. 
They just couldn't take any more. They didn't deny that he did this, by the way. They never said, oh, he didn't really raise him. That was a trick or something. They said, oh, no, he's doing wonderful signs. We have to kill him. Amazing how unbelief has to work. Well, here is the, not only the power of God exposed in this miracle, but the compassionate heart of God is here for those that he loves. It's his love being worked out here for his believing people who are in their lowest moments. There are moments when tragedy has come, when sadness is great, when they say, nothing can happen to change this. Here comes God with a wonderful surprise of his power and love. Well, you know I can't cover everything in this, in this swath of Scripture, 53 verses today, but, so there are many things I'll just completely overlook. And yet I'm going to put before you four points from this chapter for four sections of this and try to cover, to some extent, the whole part that I alluded to. You may want to look over the first 16 verses because in just a moment I'll be referring to those. In fact, in the first point comes from John 11, 1 through 16, And I would give it this headline, if you will, a desperate plea answered by Jesus, delay. I want to point out to you that both verses 3 and 5 tell us to whom this action comes, to those whom Jesus particularly loved. He loved Lazarus as one of his best human friends in the world. He wasn't one of the 12, but he was a great friend. Verse 5 says he loved Martha and her, and her sister as well as Lazarus. Their home, the home of these three single adults, a brother and two sisters, was just two miles from Jerusalem. It was more or less like a retreat house, we seem to picture, a place where Jesus could go. He could show up there on short notice. They would welcome him in. They'd have a place for him. They'd put a meal before him. No questions asked, no conditions they were his friends. You all have friends like that. People, the first call you make when you're in trouble, they were that kind of person. And their friendship was an easy thing. They were like family to Jesus. They were beloved. And that's emphasized here. And I think you need to have that in mind because this is how Christ acts. This is how our God acts towards those he loves the best. All right? Stop and think a minute, if I got a phone call on Wednesday or Thursday and I'm working away on the sermon and I'm very mindful of many duties and many responsibilities going on and time has already been cut short to get a sermon done and and the phone call comes and something tragic is told me that that let's say my wife or or a very good friend or my son has been in a, a car accident and you'd better go to the hospital. They're in Lancaster General Hospital. Pastor, go. Would you imagine me saying, well, you know, it's been a very tough week for you to give me news like this. I'm behind in the sermon. I'm not going to get things done. Uh, I better stick to my task here in the office. Would you call me in a day or two and tell me how they're doing if they, if they make it? Of course I wouldn't say that. I'd be in the car in a flash. I'd get there as quickly as I could to be beside the person I love. Now, our text is telling us that this man, Lazarus, is one who was the object of agape love, that generous, poured-out love from Jesus to him, a friendship that, that went beyond just friendship, that didn't look for a reward or what can you do for me. 
that great love that bonded Jesus to this special friend, and yet we read when the messenger came to Jesus, who was apparently, and all the estimates are are all over the place by the commentators, but we think at least two to three days journey away, at least two to three. He says, I've got things to do. Don't worry. This won't end in death. God will be glorified and implies, I'll get there when I get there. And of course, it seems that we would understand Jesus knew that Lazarus either already was dead or was about to die. Now, the question for many people is, why this delay? And I have to put it in quotes because it's only a delay in the eyes of the observer. Here's the Son of God with a sense of God's timing, doing God's work. Who knows that he will do it in the right time and in the right way? But to human beings, it's why doesn't he grab, you know, the fastest donkey or better still, you know, a great horse and get on it and ride on down there as fast as he can go? Well, there actually are reasons we can explain here, and I'll mention two just quickly. For one thing, there's very good indication in this text that there is no way that Jesus could have physically arrived in Bethany before Lazarus died. Just take the understanding of where he was, which was a couple days walk away, at least two, and the fact that when he arrived after a two-day delay, Lazarus had been dead four days. Do the math. It's really not hard. Jesus could not have reached there before Lazarus would have died, and he knew that. And so he was saying to them, in effect, look, my, the timing isn't what you think it is. And I'm, uh, it's not a matter of calculating, can I get there to stop his death? And then it appears to, to be that, that he knew that when he arrived, he would be able to do a great work for God. And perhaps it would be an even more stunning and clear work of God if he arrived when the death was that much more sealed I mean, you know how it is when we hear someone has died? For a day or two, you just can't even take it in. You wake up in the morning, you think, oh, oh, this person has died. And it's not even real to you. But two, three days, it starts to settle in. Of course, a burial happens. Yes, this person has died. Four days, there was a later tradition. It wasn't understood at this time. So I would be careful to say that this doesn't govern our text But there was a later tradition of Jewish rabbis hundreds of years after this who said that in their conclusion, somehow, the spirit departed from the body on the fourth day. Now, how or why they figured that out is is an unsure thing. But here, it's very clear. Jesus is going to come and have to deal with a corpse in a grave in a hot climate four days after death. He answered a desperate plea by what appeared to be a delay. But now let's go ahead from verse 17 through 27 that I read for you and summarize another surprising thing here. I'll say it this way. Amid others' devastating loss, Jesus called primary attention to himself. Now you see his dialogue with the two sisters. By the way, I've, I've come to regard this text after reading it, preaching about it, meditating on it a lot of times over the years. I used to think that, that Martha and Mary were, 
were really somewhat sarcastically blaming Jesus when they first greeted him, both of them with the same line. If you had been here, he would not have died. I lean much more today as I see the text as a whole towards them not blaming him, especially not Martha. Like Martha comes off with a strong declaration of faith here. They're stating a fact. I know that if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. That doesn't have to be sarcastic or cynical. It's just a statement of a fact. Lord, your power could have stopped this, but I understand that it didn't. And she even says, I know now that you can, you can perhaps still do something wonderful by the power of God. But whatever, here is Jesus with two grieving women to minister to who are his dear friends. Today we have trained grief counselors who rush in when there's a school tragedy and and they're trained to get people to talk about the, the, the person, their feelings, just kind of empty it out as one of the things that a grief counselor does. Well, I try to think of myself being in a similar position and having two sisters who've had a grievous loss. These people are close to me. They come to me. They've just had this death. They're all bereft and confused. Am I going to engage these two women in a conversation and say, hey, what do you think about the Phillies' chances this year? Let's talk about the baseball season. It's exciting. It's spring. It's baseball time. Uh, Or what if I started saying, boy, I'm having a terrible backache today, and I'm really not feeling very well. I wouldn't do that because that isn't what this conversation is about. It's about their grief and their wound. It's not about me. And yet here's Jesus who immediately turns the entire discussion to say, I am the resurrection and the life. One of those I am sayings. There's a a set of them planted in the Gospel of John as uh, John developed the, the ministry of Jesus here. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. It sounds like Jesus is occupied with himself. But let me tell you, this is no indication that Jesus was a bad grief counselor. In fact, he was the most excellent supreme grief counselor there ever was. Because he directed the thinking of these women outside of their own suffering, outside of their wounded feelings, their tender memories for their brother, and said, look, I as the powerful one from God am here, and I have a solution to your need. He didn't say, now, let me pull out a paper I wrote a while back on, uh, you know, the philosophy of eternal life, and let's talk that over. No, that would be abstract. It wouldn't be very helpful. If you're sinking in a bog and being pulled down into quicksand, you don't want somebody to talk about the you know, the physics of suction that's pulling you into the quicksand. You want somebody with a tree branch or somebody with a rope who can pull you out. And Jesus, as a real person and a very special, unique person, the Son of God is coming and saying, look, take hold of me, for I can pull you out of this and I can give the gift of resurrection life. Do you believe this? He challenged them. He didn't just say, here it is, take it or leave it. No. Do you believe this? 
Martha really came across wonderfully as she said, I do, Lord, I do believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. I do believe that you are God present for me in this hour. Jesus was saying, you need someone who can come into your situation and be the warrior who slays death. The way David once slew Goliath, he went up against him as an impossible you know, scene of combat, and everybody just laughed. I, was, I did see not too much of this recent uh, History Channel uh, Bible film that they did, but I did see the part about Goliath. I thought Goliath was very realistically and arrogantly portrayed, and Good old David, this little guy, slings his stone and bonk, down went Goliath. Nobody believed it. Everybody was laughing. You send a kid out against me? In essence, Jesus was in the position of David against Goliath. And he was saying, will you believe that I can remedy this terrible thing that you were in the midst of? Will you trust me? He wants us to be able to say like Paul in Philippians chapter 3, I want to know him. Not just abstract theology about resurrection. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection that I might somehow be conformable to him in his death. Well, we come then to a third point drawn from John 11, and it's verses 28 to 44 I state this maybe in a striking way to get your attention. I'll say it this way. This third point is that Jesus met stinking death with tears of outrage. I don't know if you were like me, but when I was a boy in Sunday school, you know, we always had a weekly memory verse, and that's a good thing. But we boys always had it figured out what we wanted to be our memory verse, and as far as I know, it was never assigned. John 11.35. Jesus wept. I said, man, I've got that one down right away. Don't have to drill. Don't have to work over it with flashcards or anything else. Jesus wept. Well, all joking aside, those two words are two of the most profound words in all of the Bible. If we understand what's happening here, isn't it amazing that moments before he, the Son of God, was going to cry out these words, come out. Actually, what he said in the Greek was just one word, out! Out of there! A word of power, a word of command that could command the dead. Knowing he was going to say this, you want to say to yourself, why was he crying? It seems incongruous that he would cry, knowing he had that kind of power to command something. You may know the movie that says there's no crying in baseball. Jesus perhaps could have said, there's no crying at a scene where I am ready to command resurrection. But he cried. And then I put beside it another two-word sentence. There's two two-word sentences here. The other one's in John eleven thirty nine, And you have to remember, I grew up in the King James Bible, and many of you did. And this was another one that we Sunday school boys loved. Not just because it was short, but because it was graphic. In the King James He stinketh. He stinketh. We thought that was one of the Bible's great sentences. Now put those two together. Jesus wept, and he stinketh. I once read a story. I didn't know the circumstance personally, but 
read in a magazine somewhere that a man bought a Corvette, a late model Corvette, at a police car auction. You know what that is. You know, the cars have been impounded because maybe somebody's died or probably a crime was committed and it no longer belongs to the criminal. Here was a late model, desirable Corvette. The man bid for it and got it. Wow, I've got a Corvette. Guess what? He hadn't examined the car before the auction. And the fact of the matter was that a man committed suicide in the back seat of that Corvette and his body wasn't found for five days. The man had bought a car that was worth almost nothing because there's practically no way to get the terrible smell of a decaying human body out of the back of that car. I'm not going to be very graphic about it. I've never smelled a human body that's been dead a number of days in a hot climate. But what I'm asking you to do today is put these two things side by side. Jesus wept. The Son of God, who had all power, groaned. It says he was moved deeply in his spirit as he wept. And Lazarus stinks. How do these two things go together here? The text actually says the same as if Jesus shuddered. He shook with revulsion. He was disgusted. And what he was disgusted about wasn't just a smell coming out of the cave. He was disgusted about death itself. Death that could turn the beauty of the human image, bearing the image of God our creator, man created to be like God, to speak with God, to reflect God as no other creature in all the creation could do, that man could be reduced to the kind of condition Lazarus was in at that moment, made Jesus be insulted and outraged at the power of death. That's why he wept. It wasn't just sympathy weeping with the sisters. It was anger weeping at what death the monster could do to humanity. And even though the Son of God knew he could conquer this, facing it like that, smelling it, he was horrified at what Satan and sin had done to man. This was a world-shaking sorrow for the awful ruin of our sin. And Jesus groaned that any human being, let alone his friend, should be entirely and irreparably corrupted in their body and their spirit apart from the rescue of grace and the restoration that God could bring. Jesus met stinking death with tears of holy outrage. Now finally this, a quick point. Verses 45 to 53. Teaches the greatest surprise that's here of all. These are all surprising things. Here's this one. Jesus gives believers true life by dying in our place. And look who tells us this. That's what's so surprising. This isn't announced by one of the disciples. It wasn't even said by Jesus himself. We are doubly amazed by the narrator of this. It is Caiaphas the high priest, the most cynical, politically insidious power monger in the whole passion narratives of Christ. The guy who held all the reins of power. And I hardly know of a place in the Bible where irony is more deliciously 
sweet in the way it's expressed than right here. Caiaphas was lecturing his fellow Sanhedrin members, saying, as they said, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? I don't know. What should we do? And he just said, stop. And in so many words, are you all stupid or what? It's very obvious what we have to do. Jesus has to die. Because it's better that one man should die for the people than that our whole nation should be taken away. And John asserts himself as narrator into this text here. If you see this in verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord. This is John the narrator speaking. But being high priest, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Listen, God can get his word out through anybody and anything. The Old Testament has Balaam's donkey preaching God's word on one occasion. Here's the greatest enemy of the cross preaching an evangelical speech about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Praise God. God can get his message out. Now let me just tell you a couple ways in which we apply this text quickly. First of all, I think implied at least at the beginning of this chapter, implied by the whole issue of Jesus' so-called delay, is a fine suggestion about how we ought to pray when we are confused over what God is doing in our life. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I know there are people here who are confused about what God is doing in their life. What's my next career move? What do I do in the light of that firing I just experienced? Or my economic circumstances? Or the death that's happened in my home? Or whatever it is. What's God doing? Does God have any plan? Is he going to respond? It doesn't seem like he's done anything. I I prayed for this person not to die, and they died. You know how a little child demands things? Children's sense of time and scheduling is very one-dimensional. It can be expressed in the word N-O-W. Now, please. Now, now, now. And some of us stay children all our lives. That's the way we pray. God, I need this. Now, now, now. And if you don't do it now, 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 I will think you are not much of a God. And yet Romans 5.3 says this, our suffering, whatever it may be, produces perseverance. Perseverance leads to character. Character produces hope. God, in other words, does his work in us as we suffer. Not because he's some monster who wants to see us hurt, but because he knows what can be achieved by our suffering. And he can be trusted while we suffer and while we wait and while we pray and say, when will it come, Lord? Where's the answer? I love Isaiah 30, verse 18, that says, and therefore the Lord waits. Why? in order to be gracious to you. There are times when he can be gracious after the suffering in ways he cannot be if the suffering never came. And so our best way to pray in the time of a critical illness or a bereavement or career confusion probably should be to say, Lord, I make no demands of you. My times are in your hands. You made me. You redeemed me. You love me, so do with me whatever you will. Do it whenever you will do it. 
and I will strive to praise you. Secondly, this is an application. It's so easy when we're the ones suffering or grieved for all the attention to be sort of gathered into me. I'm hurting here. I'm hurting. Does anybody around me know how much I'm hurting? Look what Jesus did. Yes, he loved these sisters. He loved Lazarus, but he called attention to himself. As the unique person, God among men, who said, look to me, Put your trust in me because as long as you're wallowing around inside yourself, there's no answer for you. Look beyond yourself. Look to me. Understand that I'm weeping and I'm groaning over the things that you're groaning about. I'm your high priest. I know what's wrong in your life better than you do. And I see the horror of it. And I'm paying the price for there to be a solution. And finally this... What Caiaphas predicted is exactly what Jesus accomplished. One did die in the place of many. Don't you see how the, the picture of Lazarus in his tomb, his flesh corrupted, smelling bad, he wasn't embalmed. There was nothing nice about a human body in that climate. The picture of Lazarus in his condition is the picture of our souls. One thing that this passage tells us is a paradigm of salvation. We were dead. We were beyond dead. We were rotten in our corruption before God. We were beyond any medical hope or human change that would turn things around for us. And God, in miracle-working, life-giving grace, in his great love, came and brought that work which would bring us alive. John, this same author, writes in his first epistle, 1 John 4.10, herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the go-between, the substitute for our sins. It doesn't say herein is love that we loved God so much that we achieved this Notice the emphasis of John 11. It was on Jesus loving them, not them loving Jesus. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the remedy. Ladies and gentlemen, our God still works by surprising grace. How he delights. Just like you when you anticipate, you know, grandma's birthday party, and somebody's, by some deception, getting her into the room where everybody's hiding and quiet, waiting to say, surprise! I don't think that's such a bad picture of our God, waiting to see the stunned delight on our faces when he works by power and grace in his great love to rescue us from that which we cannot rescue ourselves. Our souls are like decayed corpses. In our natural being, we are worse off than we could ever imagine in terms of spiritual things. But the wonderful surprise is this. By trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in our place, we are more perfectly loved and totally forgiven and absolutely restored than we ever imagined could be possible. Thanks be to God.
God of surprises. God of grace. Let's pray together. Father, some of us need to discover this surprise applied in our life. We're sitting here saying, yes, but he doesn't know what I'm going through. We pray to you, God, because you do know what every single person here is going through. And I pray for that one who's in some extremity here today. Marriage has gone sour, career's wrong, finances are wrong, something's terribly wrong. Lord, we want to say, fix it right now. But we know that's not the way you always work. So what we say is, Lord, bring your solution. Bring us patience and real hope to wait and rejoice at what you will do. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.